Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. The intersection of 38th and Chicago has a long history. In the early 20th century, Minneapolis had restrictive housing covenants that pushed black residents into a handful of neighborhoods, mostly in North Minneapolis. But the area around the 38th Street corridor is one of the South Minneapolis neighborhoods that was, at one time in the last century, this really thriving area of black arts and culture. That's Politico's Renu Ryasam who's been reporting from the area surrounding 38th and Chicago. There's the oldest Black-owned newspaper in Minnesota there. Um, Prince went to high school there. Yeah, you heard that right. That Prince. Thank you so much. Recently, the area has become a national symbol in the racial justice movement. It's where Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd, and now is the site of an ongoing protest and occupation. I mean, it's become this global movement. You have this one little intersection that could be any intersection in any city with a bodega on the corner, there's a church, there's an abandoned gas station. Um, It's a busy thoroughfare, but they've um, barricaded four streets in each direction that radiate out from this intersection, it's now called a George Floyd Square. You know, 38th in Chicago is, it was the soul of the city, and now I think it's become the soul of the nation. Activists have closed off George Floyd Square for nearly a year and are demanding structural changes in the city, including defunding the police. And it's a complicated situation for local leaders like city councilwoman Andrea Jenkins. I don't think anybody thought that we were going to not have police after June 7th. Like we were just going to fucking get rid of the police. That's ridiculous. Jenkins is the nation's first black openly transgender woman elected to public office. But she's facing contempt from activists who say she's a traitor because she's no longer for completely defunding the police. Abolition is a process. And Jenkins supports peacefully reopening George Floyd Square, an area that she's watched change over the years. She's lived in that area for two decades. And for her, it represents this history of Black culture and art and business in Minneapolis. It was a, it was a, a real model of how you can revitalize a community through, through the arts. For decades before, you know, before George Floyd died, she felt like if she could revive this area, this is her home, her neighborhood, if she could be a part of bringing back businesses, creating a center for street festivals and art and culture and music, that they could really recapture some of that legacy. And that's something she's been thinking about for a long time. I'm Jeremy Siegel. This is Politico Dispatch. And today... Renu Ryasam on Councilwoman Andrea Jenkins, George Floyd Square, and the soul of the nation. So one of the activists I spoke to 
is um, Janelle Austin. A life-changing, world-changing incident happened at Medea in Chicago. She grew up in Minneapolis near the square, but had been living in Austin, Texas, when George Floyd um, died. And she immediately came back to Minneapolis and became one of the lead caretakers for the memorial. And you have to understand, last summer, like, every day the memorial was different. Like, people would come and interact with it. It's a living memorial. And we also say that we protest with the earth. And so however, like, if it rains, it rains. If it snows, it snows. If it's like, the wind blows, the wind blows. Her job now is taking the things that people bring to the memorial and um, and storing them. Um, there's some donated space that she's gotten so that when there is a permanent memorial, that those um, items can be preserved and um, and and looked at for for years to come. So Janelle and other activists who are part of this protest, which is ongoing today, the anniversary of George Floyd's killing are barricading the surrounding streets. They have a series of checkpoints, and they aren't moving as other residents, businesses, city leaders are calling for traffic to resume. What is at the core of this demonstration? What is it that activists want to see? So the people who are occupying the square, they have this list of 24 demands. And, you know, at the core of them is a start of what they say is movement towards racial justice in Minneapolis. So that means, practically speaking, that means a lot of investment in the community mm-hmm. and the creation of jobs, a lot of um, violence prevention programs, investment in education and um, and opportunities for kids. Uh-huh. But what they also want is to completely get rid of the Minneapolis Police Department um, and replace it with the Department of Public Safety. And that's not something that everybody agrees on. So in Minneapolis, Crime has, um, like it has in all major cities, you know, really grown this past year. And in just the past few weeks, three different kids were shot by stray bullets in North Minneapolis. One of them died. Um, one girl was playing on a trampoline in her yard when she was hit by a bullet and ended up in the hospital. Um, and so that's really upset the community. Um, that's, you know, that's in Black North Minneapolis, um, and divided a lot of people who say that they don't want the police defunded. They do want a police presence. They they do want reforms in the police department, which the city has started to do some of that. They started to move money away from the police department into, into other violence prevention programs. Mm. But, you know, the police department still has a huge budget in Minneapolis, and there's some real tension about how to address that and how to both try to navigate this effort for racial justice between the reality that um, Minneapolis police are much more likely to use force against black residents than white residents. Um, there have been a lot of studies documenting that pattern. And in the middle of that, you have Andrea Jenkins, who is trying to figure out which way to go. So activists are really upset because last summer she attended this defund the police rally and said she was all for getting rid of the Minneapolis Police Department. This is a journey. This ain't going to happen overnight. This ain't going to happen tomorrow. We need everybody. We need everybody. But, you know, a year later with all the crime and the realities of what it will take to actually dismantle a police department, she's back down. And now sort of on the side of, we do have to invest in all these other programs, but you still have to have a police for, you know, when there's a shooting and when other things are going on. And we have been on that process. We eliminated 5% of the police budget and transferred it to 
the Office of Violence Prevention. So to say that we walked anything back is bullshit. That is just not a true statement. I think that's generally the consensus for a lot of people is that um, in trying to find this middle ground that that there should be some police presence to respond to certain types of activities. It's just unrealistic to think that we can um, overturn these systems. And so to, to expect me, the black trans woman, the most marginalized person in America, and I'm not saying me as an individual, but in terms of societal power, black trans women right. have the least amount of power in our culture and society. And so now I'm supposed to be the one that completely repairs white supremacy. And if you don't do it in 10 minutes, then you're a sellout or you have disappointed us or I can't trust the city anymore. I mean, I just think it's a joke. But like I said, for the activists who are occupying the square, um, they just want the police to be gone. And it's not like we can just wake up one day and say, hey, you know what, let's defund the police. And then everybody gets on board with that. People are fighting that. Yeah. They're not just saying, we think that's a bad idea. They are actively working against that. Yeah. (laughs) And so it's just not that simple. It's interesting with this whole situation how George Floyd Square has kind of become an inflection point of how far activists or leaders should be going in racial justice efforts. And on the other end, obviously, there are really loud voices like Jenkins mentioned who are strongly opposed to police reform. And then you have Jenkins herself taking heat, trying to tread opposing views and calling for a peaceful end to the blockades around 38th and Chicago. As someone who's been talking to all ends on the ground there, how are you making sense of what comes next and whether there will be structural change a year after Floyd's death? Well, so, you know, one of the activists I talked to said, you know, she's 48. She said, I've been waiting for racial justice reform for 48 years. And I thought about that a lot in the context of this story, that occupying an intersection in a city, a major intersection in a city for a year, it's a long time, but change is going to take a lot longer. Um, You know, I think what the activists are calling for, which is addressing the root problems of crime, I think we're at a point in Minneapolis. Minneapolis is a very progressive city. It's a white city, but a very progressive city. I think a lot of people agree with that sentiment and agree with that um, effort and are trying to figure out a way to make that happen. Um, but, you know, you know, especially at this point. But that's going to take time. It takes time for job opportunities and educational opportunities to really make an impact in a community and even police reform. It's going to take time to retrain officers, to rehire officers, to create the kind of culture change that is needed to keep the police from ever doing anything like what they did to George Floyd ever again. And so, you know, one of the things that I think about is that I think everybody is looking for like a quick solution. And I think Andrea Jenkins and I think a lot of the most thoughtful people I've talked to for the story realize that this is this is going to take a long time and that um, the truth is maybe somewhere in the middle and the hope, and I think what activists are hoping is that, you know, at some point, I think the city will 
have to forcibly reopen the intersection because of things that the the activists are calling for, like I said, aren't going to happen in the time frame that the city wants. And I think the hope is that even after the intersection is reopened, that nobody forgets what this movement started. Renu Ryasum, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Also, today, National Guard troops are slated to depart from Capitol Hill this week, nearly five months after thousands were deployed to safeguard Congress amid fears of further unrest following the violent January 6th insurrection. The military presence has been a regular fixture for lawmakers and staff since mid-January, with troops scattered throughout the Capitol for high-profile events like Trump's impeachment and the inauguration of President Biden. The departure of roughly 2,000 troops comes as Capitol Police and other Hill security officials have raced to address shortcomings exposed by the riot. And President Biden and Russian leader Vladimir Putin are likely to hold their first summit next month in Geneva, Switzerland. That's according to a U.S. official familiar with the issue. The exact date of the summit wasn't immediately clear, but it's expected to be held around the same time that Biden is visiting Europe in mid-June to meet with NATO and European Union leaders, though the Putin summit is still tentative and plans could change. Russia and the U.S. are currently at odds on numerous fronts, from cybersecurity to Russia's war with U.S.-backed Ukraine. But there are potential areas of cooperation, like how to stop climate change. Today's episode included music composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Be sure to subscribe to Politico Dispatch if you haven't yet. And if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend to check out the show. I'm Jeremy Siegel. Thanks for listening.